Welcome to the Fallon Forum. As you know, we try to bring you independent voices and civil dialogue every week across that gaping political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Yes, that would be Des Moines, Iowa. If you value what we do, we need your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has excellent catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. And yes, the first plants of spring are making their appearance here in the uh, heartland. And that means, of course, the St. Patrick's Day week. Yeah, we celebrate for a whole week. Is coming up real soon. And speaking of the Irish and St. Patrick's Day, thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our new bumper music. So what's our lineup this week? Well, we'll, we'll talk about how liberty and freedom are being trampled in Palestine. Uh, no, not Palestine, Ohio, although you could make that case as well. Palestine, as in the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. And yes, also in Idaho for different reasons. We'll also talk about the uh, showdown on student debt and also how cell phones are coming into fire because of their impact on human health, especially on our kids. And finally, for our farm and food conversation, Kathy Burns and I host our March Garden Q&A. And you know, if you've ever got a farm or garden question you'd like to take a shot at giving, having us answer, feel free to email Kathy at uh, Kathy, with a K, A-T-H-Y, Kathy at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. But first, I want to talk about that big, huge chunk of ice on the very southern part of our globe, the Antarctic. It is huge, right? It's huge. Hey, it's a continent. Of course it's huge. So here's a pop geography quiz for you all. Which U.S. state is the size of the Antarctic? Okay, I'll, I'll wait a bit. No, no, don't Google it. That's cheating. And besides, we're going to talk about cell phones and your addiction to your cell phone later in the program. Okay, if you don't know, and it's any consolation, I was way off in my guess as well. Okay, that's enough time, class. The, uh, the answer is, if you, if you guess Texas, nope. Did you guess Alaska? Nope. The Antarctic is as big as the entire U.S. and Mexico combined. Now, wrap your mind around that. That's, that's incredible. That's, and remember, Mexico is no small country. Mexico is, in fact, the world's 13th largest country. And by the way, I didn't know that either. So not only is, is the Antarctic, and I'm good at geography, so not only is the Antarctic huge, but it's, it's covered by, by a layer of ice, and that ice averages about one mile thick, averages one mile thick, and in some places, it's almost three miles thick. This is amazing when you think about it. You know, a landmass the size of the U.S. and Mexico, that is ice, a mile thick, some places three miles thick. So according to, um, to NASA, and that, of course, is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. It's helpful to remind us what the, what the acronym stands for once in a while. According to NASA, if all the ice on Earth were to melt, that would be Antarctic, Greenland, the Arctic, other places as well but those are the main ones, if all that ice were to melt, it would raise sea level by 195 feet. Okay, so that's a big if, right? Well, not really. It's really just a question of when. We're heading that way. We are heading that way. Make no mistake about it. We are heading that way. And it's not if, it's when. And so if you, you, know, if you own a home in Miami, Florida, and for that matter, anywhere in Florida, regardless of how you feel about Governor DeSantis, it would be really good to be thinking about real estate in some other place because it's just a matter of time before this stuff really goes. And of course, um, you know, of course, ice, here's the news. The news is that sea ice in the Antarctic is down a record low, and this follows last year's record low. And again, that's not the big problem because try this scientific experiment, experiment at home, kids, okay? Do this. Get yourself a nice glass of cold water and put an ice cube in that. And as it melts, 
you'll notice that the uh, water level doesn't change. Of course it doesn't because that ice is already part of the volume of that glass. But what happens in the Antarctic and elsewhere is that as that ice melts on the sea, it, it prevents, it, it serves as a buffer preventing stuff on the land from melting and running into the sea. Because it's that stuff that's frozen, it's that mile of ice on the continent itself that you ought to be worried about. And so maybe you've heard of the, the, uh, the Thwaites Glacier. This is the huge, and I can't remember, it's as big as England, I think, or the entire island of England, Scotland, and Wales combined. It's huge at any rate, and uh, it's very vulnerable. It is known in scientific circles as the Doomsday Glacier because it holds enough water to raise sea levels across the globe by one and a half feet. One and a half feet. That's just one glacier. And so, again, with sea ice down that much, historically, an historic low, following last year's historic low, we ought to be real concerned. Yeah. So... What do we do? What, 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 what do we do besides be concerned? Well, do we all become vegans? No, that's not the answer, and I'll tell you why. Uh, first, I want, I want to quote from uh, a woman named Isabella Tree. She's the author of Wilding, The Return of Nature to a British Farm. Uh, and she wrote, quote, Rather than being seduced by exhortations to eat more products made from industrial-grown soy, maize, and grains, we should be encouraging sustainable forms of meat and dairy production based on traditional rotational systems, permanent pasture and conservation grazing. We should, at the very least, question the ethics of driving up demand for crops that require high inputs of fertilizer, fungicides, pesticides, and herbicides, while demonizing sustainable forms of livestock farming that can restore soils and biodiversity and sequester carbon. Now, it may not be surprising to you that I agree with her 100%. Um, you know, soil loss is one of our biggest problems, uh, not just, you know, globally. And, and gosh, you can sure see it here in Iowa. Or if you want to see the other side of Iowa's soil loss problem, go down to, go down to Louisiana and check out the Gulf of Mexico, where the dead zone is continuing to wreak havoc on the lives of fisher people down there. So a 2015 report from the UN Food and Agricultural Organization stated that across the world, 25 to 40 billion tons of topsoil are being lost each year due to erosion. And erosion is, in many cases, bad farming practices. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you, you can't anticipate the 10 inches of rain that falls in two hours, but that has a huge impact on your, on your soil, of course. But so does the lack of a cover crop. So does the lack of buffer strips. So does the lack of terracing and, uh, and grass runways and all these other things that we should be doing to help control erosion. And again, one of those is uh, more, uh, more biodiverse uh, practices on your farm. You know, we, we've got a great reminder of the problem here in Iowa. Again, and, and Iowa is one of the worst offenders. And I, I think this great reminder, which I'm going to tell you about, <laughs> uh, is... The first time I saw it, I was blown away. And unfortunately, it has done very little to motivate the political leadership of our state to take meaningful action. If you're ever driving on I-80 through Iowa, you'll come to, you know, you'll be passing a little town called Adair. And you'll know you're passing Adair because they have a water tower that's painted like a yellow smiley face. Very cute. I believe they also have a upside-down winter or turbine blade stuck in the ground. But uh, if you're going the other direction, you've got to be coming east on I-80, and you'll come to this rest stop and stop there not just because you have to go to the bathroom uh, or you have to walk the dog, but because you'll wanna, you don't want to miss this um, display. It's, it's five very tall pillars, and each one of them uh, is smaller than the previous one. Each one of them represents a date, 1850, 1900, 1950, and I think 1975 and 2000. And each one of those pillars shows the amount of topsoil lost, the, the topsoil death at that location, at that point in time. And you can see from 1850 to even 1900, for example, that there was topsoil lost. And it just gets worse and worse. And so, you know, uh, you know, between, again, we are, 
Iowa has some of the richest soil in the world. And back in uh, 1850, the topsoil depth here was 14 inches on average. What is it today? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure what it is today because this is the last figure we have is 23 years ago. But in, in 2000, it was 5.5 inches. So down from 14 inches of topsoil to 5.5 inches. And that soil is running off into our rivers. Uh, it's a problem. And again, it's, it's a problem that agriculture has not effectively addressed. And it needs to. Uh, even, if, even, if, even if just from a selfish perspective, for agriculture's own sake, you don't want to take your, your richest resource and send it down the river, you know, causing, again, trouble in this case for Louisiana. But, you know, if you lose your topsoil, you don't gonna, you've, you've got nothing left to farm on. And uh, I think farmers know this, but again, there's, it's, there's kind of a, it's kind of a trap. You know, you've got this system set up to raise monoculture. And when I, when I say monoculture, I mean the, here it is, the corn-soybean rotation. Yeah, technically that's two crops, but it's, it's, uh, it's about three or four crops too little if you really want to have a functional rotational system. And again, there's no cover crop involved. Some farmers, yes, more and more are doing no-till. And there are some issues with no-till as well. Come to Iowa, you'll see that, 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 uh, that display. But you don't have to come here to see, to know what's going on. So, again, yes, there's no doubt about it that industrial agriculture, uh, intensive livestock operations is part of the problem. Uh, but you, if you start you know, bringing in rotational grazing, um, other ways of restoring soil health, increasing biodiversity, uh, creating habitat for pollinating insects, uh, water quality management, flood management. You know, you're going to increase the diversity and health of that, bio, that, that ecosystem. And that involves animals, okay? There's no ecosystem on Earth that doesn't involve animals and plants, except possibly the Antarctic or maybe uh, the Arctic or maybe the most dry and forbidden deserts. And there, again, it's probably not so much plants you're looking for there, but animals. Um, you know, animals eating animals, walruses eating fishes, uh, um, polar bears eating walruses. You know, it's, it's a meat-oriented world when you get to the ends, <laughs> the top and the bottom. But any other ecosystem is going to have both plants and animals. And, you know, we, um, Kathy and I, we have our Birds and Bees Urban Farm, and we, uh, we've known, we took a walk yesterday, a walk, uh, a woodland walk. And I was thinking we'd hear a lot of birds, because around our place we hear tons of birds. But, you know, there weren't, there, weren't that, there weren't as many birds out there in the woods as we have here on our urban farm. And we also have, I mean, even, even now, just, just uncovering some of the garden beds, the leaves that have been on there in the fall, tons of worms. Uh, pill bugs. I almost wish, uh, I wonder if I could count the number of pill bugs per square foot of soil. I'm not sure how much it would be, but I think we'd be in the many, many millions. But, you know, and we also have, unfortunately, lots of squirrels. So the, um, it's, a, it's, rich di it's rich diversity, and it is animals and plants living in harmony because they need each other. And, you know, there are definitely animals that, that are only going to eat plants. There are definitely animals that are only going to eat other animals. And then there's those of us in the middle who get to choose. And, you know, you can choose to be a vegan if you want or a vegetarian. I'm fine with that. But don't pretend that that's the solution to our climate problem. And don't pretend that's what all of us need to do. Because I, I tell you, raising animals sustainably is a lot more environmentally friendly than vast fields of soybeans or uh, almond, are, I mean, almonds are one of the worst <laughs> in terms of water consumption, the, 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 the forced migration of bees from across the country to California to pollinate those almonds. You know, so, you know, let, let's be honest about this. The vegan, the vegan choice is not the solution to the climate crisis. And I get tired of people pushing that. So I push back. Again, respect the choice if that's what you want. But let's be honest about that, the fact that there are environmental consequences to plant-based diets if your plants are coming from industrial operations. The problem is industrial-scale farming. That's what's not working. That's what needs to change. So I want to close again with a, a comment uh, and a quote from Isabella, again, the woman who wrote the uh, story about uh, why veganism is not the answer. 
She says, quote, there's no question we should all be eating far less meat and calls for an end to high carbon polluting, unethical, intensive forms of grain fed meat production are commendable. But if your concerns as a vegan are the environment, animal welfare and your own health, then it's no longer possible to pretend that these are all met simply by giving up meat and dairy. Counterintuitive as it may seem, adding the occasional organic pasture-fed steak to your diet could be the right way to square the circle. This is Ed Fallon, folks. we got to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about freedom and liberty being trampled in Idaho and Palestine. And no, I'm not talking about Palestine, Ohio. Again, though, we could be having that conversation. I'm talking about Israel, Palestine. Uh, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Crunchy, crunch, crunch, munch. Creatures came over to eat some lunch. lunch. Herbivores, carnivores, omnivores. I better go shopping at lots of different stores. They really, really make a great lunch bunch. But what should we feed them? I don't have a hunch. Lunch. What should I get this bunch for lunch? Herbivore, carnivore, omnivore, crunch. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Good to have you back, folks, on the Fallon Forum for our second conversation of the day. You know, at a time when these big corporations control more and more of our media, the niche that we and community-oriented stations provide is more important than ever. So please support what we do. Uh, Go to the Fallon Forum website, sign up for our weekly blogs, donate, even better, become a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, where owner Mark Lipsham uh, has been doing his work for a long time, and he says that no matter how you plan or renovate your project, please use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford, and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, so Palestine. Been in the news a lot lately because of Ohio, but I want to talk about Palestine across the ocean, Israel-Palestine. So last week, the Israeli police arrested five suspects, and uh, these were presumably Jewish settlers who were upset, and rightfully, about uh, two Jewish settlers being killed by a Palestinian. And they set off on a rampage in the occupied West Bank uh, that, again, that did incredible damage. Uh, One Palestinian was killed. Uh, Dozens of houses and businesses were burned. Cars were burned. Uh, Crops were burned as well. Uh, This was in the village of Huwara. And as of the recording of this program, that village remained closed by army orders. And uh, again, a heavy Israeli military presence is now there. Now, 
The uh, to its credit, the Israeli government has been speaking out against the uh, has condemned the uh, the riot. The the well, some are calling it a pogrom. But, you know, the actions of these Israeli citizens or these settlers, uh, Jewish settlers, is being condemned by the government. And uh, that's good, except that uh, the government is, you know, part of the a big part of the problem here because they are allowing these illegal settlements to take place. And if you take issue with my characterization of these settlements as illegal, well, then you'll have to take that up with the United Nations because the international community considers that these settlements are illegal under international law. I know Israel disputes that, but it's pretty hard to make that argument. Uh, you know, so if, they, if, they had, if, if, if these weren't allowed in the first place, these killings probably never would have happened. So, you know, I'm not willing to let the Israeli government off on that. But um, again, at least they are responding appropriately at this point. We'll see where it goes from here. The, uh, the, uh, the Palestinian prime minister says the arrests are not enough. Uh, and I'll quote, he says, we see an organized crime perpetrated by the Israeli government and carried out by the settlers. For his part, um, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government, uh, he, he and his government have, have responded, assuring, that people, uh, assuring people that more action will be taken against the aggressors. Again, okay. But uh, if you look at the, uh, again, we're in only, we've gone through a little over two months of 2023, and already over, over 60 Palestinians have been killed. Uh, 13 Israeli citizens and have been killed. One Ukrainian citizen has been killed. I'm not even sure of the backstory of that. But it's, um, it's an ongoing problem. And uh, what's the solution? Well, we can talk a lot about that, but... Um, I want to quote from a couple people who uh, have some deep expertise in this area. One is uh, Aliyah Bahimi. She's a non-resident senior fellow in the Middle East programs at the Atlantic Council. And she says, quote, as it has played out, the ostensible pursuit of a two-state solution has only sustained the occupation. A one-state solution would aim to see Arabs and Jews enjoying equal rights in a single democratic country. This would better represent the multi-ethnic reality of the communities living under Israel's control and better fit the shifting global culture. This means Israel must choose between a divisive and damaging settlement policy, which undercuts the notion of a meaningful future Palestinian state and the dream of an ethnically pure Jewish state. And I would say for myself that the dream of any ethnically or religiously or culturally pure state of any kind is just a bad idea. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about my Irish heritage. And if I look at Ireland, you know, it's like every place in the world, there have been, an, there's, there's an influx of, of people. I mean, yeah, sure, we had the Normans, the Vikings, the English. Uh, some of that, a lot of that, most of that didn't go very well. But over time, things settle out and you don't want to see anybody of English descent must leave Ireland. You don't want to see anybody who is descended from the Spanish sailors who were sunk uh, in the Spanish Armada off the coast of Galway has to leave Ireland. You know, at some point you embrace what the changes that have happened, even if they, even if they happened in a way that's not just. And, and again, you could argue that the way Israel was set up was not just. But at some point, we have to accept that there is a an absolute necessity for people to learn to get along. And I agree that I think the two-state solution is just um, a way of, um, a, a, you know, continuing the problem. Um, and, and, and again, one, one great thing about the U.S., at least historically, is that we have been open to diversity. Uh, <laughs> I say that knowing that in our current environment, that's not always, uh, always the case with, with some people and some political parties. But, um, you know, my own experience, I, I have a lot of experience and background in all things Jewish. Um, no, no, no Jewish blood in my, in my ancestry, but, um, you know, I studied Hebrew at Drake. I was a religion major. That was my main focus, was learning Hebrew and reading, reading the text in the Hebrew language. I really valued that. I learned a lot doing that. And um, I got to experience a Seder a few years ago. Uh, with uh, friends in Arkansas, that was a delightful experience. 
When I traveled to Israel back in 1979, this was uh, literally just two months after Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president, was assassinated. It was a high-tension time. I stayed on a kibbutz. Uh, that was a tremendously valuable, ex- valuable experience to see how people had you know, come together to form a viable community around farming. Um, I also had a, I remember a negative experience, too. Uh, I was, uh, me and an Australian guy had met at a, um, at a, bed, um, a youth hostel, actually, and we were out wandering the streets of Jerusalem, and a rabbi approached us and said to him, are you Jewish? And he said, yes. And he turned to me and said, are you Jewish? I said, no. And he literally turned his back on me. He put himself between me and the guy, I was my, my friend, and had his back to me as he was talking to this, this, other, this friend of mine and invited him specifically, but not me, to uh, an event that evening. It was, it was, like, it was like blatantly rude. Uh, one of my other negative experiences with the Jewish community was when I was running for Congress. APAC, the Israeli, the American Israeli Political Action Committee, uh, they uh, they wanted to meet with me so badly. Then uh, they they and they called. I, they they had to talk to my scheduler, and they didn't know that my scheduler is actually also was all actually, in fact, a, a activist on behalf of uh, several Palestinian families who were in in the Gaza Strip. But she um. They, she kept insisting, no, you, he's not meeting with lobbyists. He's not meeting with lobbyists. And finally, they said, they called one day and says, we're in Des Moines and we're going to come meet with your guy. And she said, no, you're not. <laughs> so, but they were so aggressive. I've never seen a lobbyist that aggressive before. So bottom line for us is, uh, as Americans, we, we need to pressure the U.S. government to, to not blindly support the Israeli government, to, to push for a peaceful resolution. Because I think... I think the U.S. actually holds the key card to this. If, if we had a government that began to take this more seriously and, and began to look at a truly you know, fair, democratic solution, we could put an end to this. And I think, I think I, I, and again, I, I agree with the woman I quoted earlier. There is a solution. It's not a two-state solution. It's a one-state solution that recognizes the equality of all members of that community. So... On to uh, the issue of freedom and liberty elsewhere. Today I'm going to take a look at Idaho. Because Idaho is one of several states, and uh, they were in the news recently, because their legislature passed three bills on abortion last year. And those bills were challenged in court by a pro-choice group. And the Supreme Court uh, heard those cases earlier this year, early uh, January 5th, I believe, the uh, the the state Supreme Court in Idaho. And they ruled three to two in favor of the legislature's action. In other words, they ruled three to two in favor of keeping these extremely restrictive abortion bills in effect. Now, as a result, Idaho now has a near total ban on abortion. Uh, They outlaw abortion from conception, and they only permit abortions that are performed to save the mother's life Again, not the health of the mother, mother, the mother's life, to save the mother's life, or in documented cases of rape and incest. And I'm putting documented cases in quotes right now because how do you, look at how that works out. You know, so the, the woman has to present information, the, you know, the police report that, that, that documents that they were raped. What if, the, what if they present information that, that, that that makes it clear that they were victims of incest, and then you have family members who may have been responsible for that incest who dispute that. I mean, documented cases of rape or incest, that, that just, um, talk about a denial of freedom. Incredible. So I want to go back to the issue of, of, of a woman's health. So there was discussion about that between an anti-choice spokesperson in this, I'm going to play a clip for you, uh, the, that, that anti-choice spokesperson is a woman. And the judge, a man, uh, who this, this occurred earlier this year during that trial regarding the health of the mother. And I'll play that for you right now. And then I think this goes to this kind of misconception that um, has been articulated about 18.622, that it is, bans all abortions. It does not. It allows for abortions in the case where the abortion is necessary to protect the life of the mother. So where there are two lives at stake, then 
the woman's life is protected. It's simply- What about her health? The woman's health is- Is not mentioned in the statute. Is not mentioned in the statute. And I would not read 18622's affirmative defense as saying that an abortion is allowed when necessary to protect the woman's health. It is only when the abortion is necessary to protect the woman's life. So we don't care about the woman's health? I disagree with that, Your Honor. Show me how we care about that when we haven't mentioned it in the statute and you said it wouldn't be applicable. The concern at, at the point of the woman's health is that an abortion would take the fetus's life. And so when we have lives at stake, the legislature has drilled down to the point of protecting life. And so the, the fetus's life cannot be terminated at the expense of the woman's health, but it can be terminated to save the woman's life. So you're saying we don't care about the woman's health? I disagree with that. I disagree with that um, articulation, Your Honor. We certainly do I care. I didn't understand your dis distinction that you were drawing. Well, we care about the woman's health, but we care about life, the life of the fetus as well. So the life of the fetus overcomes the health of the mother? Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor, the life of the fetus overcomes the health of the mother. That, to me, is incredible. And despite that judge's, I think, spot-on and pointed line of questioning, the Idaho Supreme Court, again in January of this year, voted 3-2 to two to allow the abortion bills passed by the Idaho legislature to stand. I want to share with you the perspective of Dr. Amelia Huntsberger, uh, she's a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist practicing in Sandpoint, Idaho. Uh, Sandpoint's a small enough town, 9,000 people. Uh, Dr. Huntsberger has been working there for over 10 years, and she's, um, she's got, you know, she's paid some dues. She has some impressive credentials. And uh, here's a quote from an article that she wrote for the Idaho Statesman, uh, well, let's see, about, a, I think, a couple, three weeks ago. Uh, quote, Idaho's abortion laws, as currently written, impede medical judgment, place pregnant patients' health in danger, and force doctors to decide between prompt, appropriate medical care and potential prosecution. These are untenable choices. So Dr. Hansberger describes the heartbreaking news of a woman's long-desired pregnancy. What if, it's, what, if, what if it is ectopic? Again, an ectopic pregnancy implants the, you know, implants outside the uterus. It's potentially life-threatening. And um, Dr. Hertzberger says, quote, with the total abortion ban in effect, doctors in Idaho wonder what care they can offer to a patient in clinic without risking, risking felony charges and a minimum of two years in jail. Imagine the government forcing patients to continue a pregnancy that may not result in a living baby and may threaten their future fertility and health. That is what is happening now in Idaho. And unfortunately, it's happening in too many other states. I mean, you know, I don't know, how long is it going to be before a doctor is sentenced to prison? Uh, where, I mean, they just, it just, this reminds me of prohibition. Again, prohibition was nowhere near as bad as this but a really bad idea that some extremists got all excited about and they were successful for a short time. And then, of course, that, the amendment, that, that amendment was repealed pretty darn fast. And I'm hoping that we come to our collective sense and realize that this is the wrong direction. And again, the judge pulling that comment out of that anti-choice woman in court that, yeah, the health of the woman really doesn't matter, that says volumes. I don't know where this goes, folks, but uh, we need to be paying attention and speaking out. We've got to take a short break here. We're going to come back and talk about student debt and about cell phones and their impact on human health, especially kids. Back in a minute, and as we go out, I'm going to leave you with a clip about freedom. Hold on to me. Don't let me go. Who cares what they see? Who cares what they know?
Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open from Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, so we're going to talk about student debt and President Biden's initiative to address that problem. Again, this is recapping what he accomplished since he couldn't get Congress on board. He used his executive authority to create a plan that would provide $20,000, up to $20,000 in debt relief for uh, families earning $250,000 or less, or individuals earning $125,000 or less. And my thinking is, wow, six figures? Um, that could be more effectively means-tested, in my opinion. If you're earning quarter of a million bucks, do you really need help with your student loans? Maybe you do. I, don't, I mean, I, college debt is off the charts. It is crazy. When I went to college in 76, I was paying, I think, 5000 bucks in tuition a year. And that was to a, a small private college in the Green Mountains of Vermont. And now I look at the university here in Des Moines. Well, we have several now. Uh, <laughs> Grandview, which used to be a college, and now they're charging, what, 38000 a year, I think? It's, it's, it's off the charts. And, uh, again, the price tag on the bill, on the bill, not really a bill, but on the plan, is $400 bucks over 30 years. And that's a lot of change. And, uh, you know, because, because the program, the plan program, whatever it is, because that was authorized without congressional approval, it's kind of in a, in a more, you know, tenuous position. It's, it's jeopardized by the potential for court cases. And, of course, up step six states, six Republican-led states that say, yeah, we want to we stick it to Joe Biden on this one and take this to court. And, of course, one of those states is Iowa. Uh, so we have Governor Reynolds, our Governor Reynolds, uh, here back, let's see, back in September of last year, and I quote, a significant majority of Americans have already paid off their student loans or chose not to pursue a higher education degree at all. Reynolds said that in a statement uh, last September. And I continue, quote, by forcing them to pay for other people's loans regardless of income, President Biden's mass debt cancellation punishes these Americans and belittles the path they chose. This expensive, unlawful plan is an insult to working people and must be stopped, end quote. And thank God we got to the end of that quote, because that was just horrible. That, that is so partisan and mean-spirited. So, I mean, should... Okay, more and more Americans are growing their own food. Does that mean we should stop farm subsidies for those who are 
I mean, it's just you, you could add you could you could insert any number of uh, of recipients of federal aid in there and come up with just just to show how ridiculous her statement is. And of course, I think they know that their lawsuit is not going to prevail. And it indeed did not prevail in October of last year. A federal judge in St. Louis dismissed the suit. But of course, now those states are appealing as they are, are want to do. You know, I mean, here they are wasting state taxpayer money to fight a federal program that has no impact on them at all. No impact. They're wasting their they're wasting our time and money because they want political points. They want to stick it to President Biden. There's, there's no other logical explanation. They're not going to win. They know they're not going to win. All they're doing is slowing it down, and they're wasting our money to do so. Now, that said, I have mixed feelings about the proposal. Again, means testing, well, it should not be, in my opinion, uh, available to people making such a lot of, such a big amount of money. I mean, a quarter of a million bucks for a couple, that's a lot of money. I, I, I don't know how many years it would take me and Kathy to earn that. <laughs> it's a lot of money. And, it you know, it, it doesn't make sense. I, I get it that college tuition, college expenses, debt has gone up so much. I mean, when I got out of college in what? Well, I, it took me 10 years to get my undergraduate degree. Kind of like John Belushi in Animal House, only I wasn't partying. I was traveling. I guess that's also a form of addiction, right? But the, anyway, the uh, the um, the bottom line is that you know I graduated with a lot less debt than most kids are graduating with these days, and I get it. I get it that it has become obscenely expensive, and really out of sync with what you uh, what you can expect to earn based on whatever degree you get. So, I I, I I'm empathetic to the president's plan to provide some assistance, but besides it being more you know, reasonably mean-tested, it ought to come with some strict parameters on how how universities and colleges are going to move forward without having to revisit, re, revisit this problem in 10 years. Because the way things are going now, there's no doubt that we will see another conversation about student debt not too long into the future. And I, I blame it on you know, colleges and universities' obsession with growth. It's the same problem that we see driving our economy. I mean, it's all about growth. It's the same problem we see with driving our cities. Cities always have to be expanding. Uh, I mean, we see that throughout central Iowa. We see it across the country. We see it at airports. Uh, we see it even in, within the nonprofit industrial complex. You know, the, the big nonprofits in D.C., they've always got to be thinking about being bigger than they were the year before. And universities and colleges are not exempt from this affliction. they got to be bigger. And so I look at Drake University, where I went to college for my last two and a half years. Uh, the first two years were in Marlboro College in Vermont. A short and ineffective stint at Berklee College of Music in Boston. Drake was very good for me. Again, I, I did very well there. And I, I got a lot out of it. What I studied had nothing to do with the eventual work that I went into. I mean, I studied religion, philosophy, Spanish, music. And for a living, living I ended up doing politics, nonprofit work, journalism. Uh, no connection. But it helped me to learn how to think and study, and that's important. Uh, and again, it was expensive, but nowhere near like it is today. But I look at what Drake's doing. I, I look at their, their footprint back when I was a student there in the 80s. And I look at it today, they have torn down so many houses. I cannot even count the dozens and dozens of houses that have been torn down so they could build another building, a bigger parking lot, um, you know, more housing. It just it boggles the mind to see how much they have grown and to know that they haven't stopped. They're still planning to keep growing. And the same with Grandview College. That was, that was the other college in my legislative district. And now it is... Grandview University, much more prestigious and a much higher tuition price tag as well. You know, so where does this end? And why are we trying to, you know, find, you know, an effective democratic government, and that's a Democrat with a small d, puts restrictions on the formation of monopolies and the expansion of industries to the point where they become non-sustainable or become, you know, incapable of allowing competition. 
And we see that. And, and at some point, we have to admit that, that uh, what's happening within higher education is not sustainable. And I think we admit that by the fact that this, this uh, student debt plan exists. So anyway, uh, yeah, let's move on. I want to talk about cell phones, or as I prefer to call mine, my federal tracking device. That's right. You know where I am at all times, Mr. President. Just uh, look at my, just, just, just tap into my, my frequency and you've got me. So uh, I want to talk mostly about cell phones and kids. We're talking about college debt and kids. Let's talk about cell phones and kids. Multiple studies have shown that there is an, a connection between the addiction that many people have with their cell phones, their mobile devices, to the, the growth in mental health problems we've seen in teenagers uh, the depression, anxiety, disrupted sleep, um, growing frequency of, uh, of suicide. And, you know, science, neuroscience specifically, tells us that teens and tweens, as they're called, they have developing brains that make them especially, especially vulnerable to addiction and mental health crises. We're seeing that. And you know, I, I presume that studies have been done, or at least if they would be done, they would find similar concerns among adults. But I suspect the problem is more severe in, you know, children whose brains are still in the formative stage. And again, we see it. And, and look at, uh, okay, this is probably not the most serious problem, but it's bad enough, distracted driving. There was a study in 2018, and it found that 37% of teen drivers text while they are behind the wheel. That's, that's a lot. And, uh, and the, the, the study concluded and, and uh, admitted that that was probably a low estimate. A different survey found that nearly half of U.S. high school students admitted to having texted while driving within the previous 30 days. And uh, another study, this one done by State Farm Insurance in 2016, found that 41% of young drivers report, reported checking social media while driving and nearly a third reported posting updates from the driver's seat. Okay, so maybe you'll say, so big deal. Well, the data show that there are problems with that. So by the most recent count, 3,477 people are killed each year in distracted driving-related accidents. And, even more astounding, nearly 400,000 are injured each year. Now, it may not always be a cell phone, but come on, it's mostly cell phones. Yeah, you can distract yourself by fiddling with the radio dial. You can distract yourself by talking to the person next to you, even, I suppose. Although, sometimes that's a good way to stay awake. You can distract yourself, and I know people have done this, uh, by putting makeup on in the car. Uh, I even know somebody who likes to play a musical instrument while driving, and I've known someone who reads a book while driving. Those are horrible things to do while you're driving. They're probably worse than cell phones, but the real frequent abuse, tool of abuse is the cell phone. And again, we're seeing the evidence of that. Um, you know, according to another, I'm, I'm, I'm citing surveys all over the place, folks. Another survey, drivers ages 16 to 19 are the most likely to die in distracted driving crashes. And driving while holding a cell phone makes teens three to four times more likely to be involved in an accident. I know states have been trying to crack down on this, but it's hard to do. It's hard to enforce. It's hard to prove, you know, what somebody has been doing on a phone. So, and again, there's no laws against putting on makeup, reading a book, or playing a musical instrument while driving. <laughs> okay, but again, those are lesser, lesser culprits. But if you do any of those things, please don't. Okay, secondly, uh, one more, a couple more things here. There was a movie, and I'm blanking on the movie's name, but it showed the extent to which, for example, Facebook will go to get you hooked and get you coming back for more and more. I've seen that on my phone. You know, the, you, my, Facebook figures out what I like, what I like, and it shows me lots of videos of. Um, in my case, uh, wild animals in Africa. Uh, <laughs> I just love that. Anyway, so I, I see a lot of those popping up on my phone. Even though I might not spend that much time on them, 
if I look even for a couple, three seconds, maybe five or 10 seconds, maybe longer sometimes, they know and they send more. And so, I mean, these devices are designed to keep us coming back for more and more. And again, as I implied earlier, they're also a good way for government to keep tabs on us. And that may sound paranoid, but we'll have another conversation about that sometime. So the average teen spends about nine hours a day using electronic media. That's according to a survey by Common Sense Media. To put that in perspective, when I was in my teens and 20s, I remember the research showing that the average person, adult and kid, spent about five hours a day in front of the TV. Now it's nine hours a day. Because again, not only do we have TVs, we have our, our computers, our, our iPads, our mobile phones. Nine hours a day, that's a lot of time. And the survey, all of that, that survey by Common Sense Media also found that half of teenagers felt addicted to their phones. They admitted a feeling addicted to their phones. And 78% said they checked them each hour or more. That's a problem. That's a problem. And I've noticed it in just social interactions. You know, especially in a place like Iowa, you walk down the street and, you, you know, if you don't see that many people, it's a customary and even polite to say hello. And now people oftentimes, even the majority, they won't even make eye contact. And if you say hello or wave, they may not even respond. And that's, that's kind of disturbing to me. And I think it's part of the, the focus that our lives have shifted from human interaction to interaction through these mobile devices. And so one last thing I'll mention about that, it may or may, may, may not be you know, a problem, but there are debates about whether or not phones cause cancer. I like to err on the side of caution, and I use a headset. At any rate, folks, we could talk more about this. When we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns is going to join us for our monthly garden Q&A. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued, and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, folks, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or are with a nonprofit, become a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Hey, Kathy Burns is with me. Kathy with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And it's that time of the month where we do our garden Q&A. Howdy. Well, howdy. <laughs> howdy to you. What do we got here? Uh, we have questions in groupings about starting seeds and seedlings. We've got some about uh, fertilizing and amending soil. And then we have some kind of random ones. Well, so pick one. All right. Let's start with uh, what is a good time to start peppers? Someone's looking at growing jalapenos and bells this year to start them inside but not sure what do you suggest, Ed? Well, again, living in Iowa, I'd say uh, a month ago would have been perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> if not that, now. <laughs> but if not that, not, like immediately. Yes. Because uh, yes. peppers tend to take a little while, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder, I, and I would it'd be interesting to ask some of the other growers in the area when they start their peppers. But 
We start them like I think early February. And and to be clear, we're talking about starting your seedlings indoors. Oh yeah, inside. Yeah. Because there's another uh, question uh, about I see everybody is starting or already started planting seeds inside. They say last year they waited uh, till April and just uh, plant in May and just planted everything outside and it worked fine. So that person is wondering if they're the only one out there doing that. They might be. Um, <laughs> you, you know, and I'll give my perspective and then Ed, you can give yours. But I used to, before I needed to, to grow a lot more food than you and I do now, uh, I planted a lot of seeds just direct sow. Um, outside. I did not start a lot of seedlings Peppers as well? Tomatoes? I bought the peppers uh, out at the garden stores, and then sometimes I just planted the tomatoes direct so outside when it was a little warmer, and then I used that milk jug. And they do pop up. They they start to grow pretty fast when they're outside already. planted the seed and then put the plastic milk jug around it? Mm -hmm, With the Mm. hole at the top for ventilation. So it really depends on your need. And the milk jug is not because the tomato plant likes milk. It's to keep it warm. (laughs) It's an empty milk jug. Keep the the wind from knocking it It's like a little tiny greenhouse. Yeah. Plastic greenhouse. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. about you? Um, I, I as far as always, starting I've seeds? never started a peppers, eggplant, or tomato direct so I've always started them from seeds inside. Okay, and yeah. um, it, I'm very it, proud of that. Well, and it depends on your situation. <laughs> if you have the space to grow them inside, and if you have the need to get that many things going, so I would say it's sort of a mixed bag. Uh, let's skip down to some questions about fertilizing seedlings. Mm-hmm. Someone has heard that half strength. Fertilizer is good for seedlings. Um, also, should they wait until there's a set of true leaves? And we don't need to worry about the, the type of fertilizer they use, but um, what do you ha- think ha- about half fertilizing? Strength, half strength of what? Of whatever fertilizer you would normally use for oh. a full-grown plant. Well, I, I uh, every week, this is kind of, uh, Kathy and I divide up the responsibilities, mm-hmm. and I'm the guy who fertilizes things. Um, well, that, sounds, that sounds wrong. <laughs> Not but, <any>. <laughs> Um, anyway, I'm the guy who fertilizes plants. So uh, every Sunday is my schedule. I will take a, just a couple drops of fish emulsion. It's very concentrated mm-hmm. stuff. And it's, you don't want to spill it in your clothing or anything mm-hmm. of value. Or it will smell like fish emulsion until the next ice age. I can attest to the strength of the smell of the fish emulsion. But, you know, one bottle of that stuff lasts for a long time. But, you know, yes. just a couple drops, three drops or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I, start, I start applying that once the, you know, you get your seed leaves once you start seeing the um, the uh, truly truly even even before then even I, I guess once the thing once the plant is sprouted within a few days or a week I'll put the first application of fish okay. emulsion on there and we do get nice big strong plants people yeah. seem uh, pretty happy with them when they get them uh, speaking of manure somebody forgot to amend or didn't have time to amend with cow they specify cow goat or chicken manure last fall and wondered can they just do it now i would say you can't well, put it on hot like that goat, goat is all is probably going to be not very hot like mm-hmm. rabbit less and, hot you know but chicken and cow that would be fairly hot mm-hmm. usually unless it's dried out if it's already dried out you got nothing to worry about right but it makes you mix it in well they they were going to go get fresh and so they oh, de- yeah. definitely need to um you know let it let it um compost or they could do a hot compost to kind of mm. cook out all the the bacteria and stuff or, or just, a cold compost but they better maybe get something that's already cured yeah. or just turn it in really well mm-hmm. so that it's pretty dissipated you know? mm-hmm. yeah. um somebody is asking uh, this is in the etc other thing category <laughs> somebody's asking about preserving potatoes through the winter they show a picture uh-huh. of their potatoes that they had uh, curing in the garage over the winter or in the stored in the garage over the winter, and they said the temperature is usually between 50 and 60 degrees. These potatoes, of course, look way beyond ready to plant. Yeah. They look like sea potatoes <laughs> gone crazy. You know, a cousin of mine in Ireland would do that. He'd let his plants grow. The You know, the eye would sprout, and he'd mm-hmm. have about six inches of a sprout, and he would plant them like that to give them a head start. Yeah, that's interesting. But to keep them in the winter, yeah, I think you got to go to a, a root, root cellar, or we use a pit. Mm-hmm. You dig a pit in the ground, Ed, and you layer it three, with straw. Yeah, straw and, and dirt layers, yep. yeah. Works three great. Feet, three feet deep. Yep, they love it. Yeah, we just, we just dug some of ours um, a few days ago, and they were, they were great. Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks, Kathy. Thanks for joining us. You bet. And thanks, folks, for listening to our program. Uh, thanks to our production team, Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, 
Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. Back again next week, folks, with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.